For some reason that we'll probably never fully understand, an extraordinary outpouring of energy began to occur around the year 1100. It was so powerful and so passionate that it transformed the way the world looked and thought about God, about justice and power, about women, love and art. This story starts with the almost unbelievable life of the woman we will come to know as Eleanor of Aquitaine. Eleanor had virtually everything this life can grant. Sunlit beauty, inherited power and wealth on a phenomenal scale. Kings as husbands, kings as sons. She lived an epic life in the middle of a whirlwind. Entangled with five mightily powerful men who fought for more than a century to control Western Europe. Surrounding them is an incredible array of people who lived in that world doing incredible things, from building stone cathedrals that streamed with sunlight, to fighting two crusades, to inventing fictional characters we still read about. We know of only a few of them, and what we do know of even these favoured few is limited by their records and our own comprehension. Come with us as we journey to meet Eleanor of Aquitaine, Henry Plantagenet, Richard Lionheart, King John, and all the remarkable people surrounding them. To be in their presence is an exhilarating experience. Won't you join us? Welcome back to Lion's Forge. My name is Beckett, and I want to tell you a story, an epic true story of five kings and the Lion Queen. Episode 11, The Second Crusade Begins. Like the questing head of an immense dog sniffing the air to the west, Anatolia faces Europe across the wine-dark waters of the Aegean, so close at the Strait of Bosphorus that the two continents touch. The Tigris and Euphrates rivers flow along the great dog's flanks, and two massive lakes lay to its eastern and western extremes. Van gleams under the rising sun, while Marmara, called the Marble Sea for its ancient quarries, glistens to the west. The marvelous animal's spine runs along the coast of the Black Sea, shadowed by the forested slopes of the Pontic Mountains. Its muzzle rests on the curved shores of the Mediterranean, where that warm blue sea nudges near the Taurus Range. Within the arms of these twinned mountain chains rests the roughened, arid Anatolian plain, sprinkled with volcanic peaks including Ararat, the legendary resting place of Noah's Ark. Viewed from high above, you marvel at the tenacity of people traveling on foot among these restless compound crags where rivers carried snowmelt to the seas. Caravans move slowly along the Anatolia's age-old trade routes between Constantinople, Egypt, and unimaginably distant China, while pilgrims headed for the holy city of Jerusalem. The Hittites and Assyrians had lived in this land, as had King Midas and the Trojans, in the mythic days when humanity was infinitely young. And it was a tumbling birthplace of gods and the messengers of gods, Ishtar and Gilgamesh, names remembered from some distant fever, Jehovah, the Christ, Muhammad. It was a place embedded in mankind's soul. 
Anatolia had been fought over for millennia, probably for as long as men had inhabited it. Byzantium had it for a time, fending off various Middle Eastern warlords, but in 1071, when Alianor's grandfather was born, the Byzantines were beaten by the Moors at a place in far eastern Anatolia called Manzikert. Muslim domination of this part of the world would not be seriously challenged again for a generation, until the First Crusade of 1096, which ultimately pushed the Muslims off, regained Jerusalem after 450-odd years of Muslim control, and created the Crusader states, variously called the Latin Kingdom, or that lovely old French word for overseas, Outremer. The First Crusade was a remarkable victory for the West, but even so, the Crusader states were never more than a tiny fragment of the lands in the Middle East. The Moors wanted that fragment back, and were moving to get it. They had already snatched Edessa, taking its fortress and leaving the precarious European toehold east of the Mediterranean even more exposed. The three remaining crusader states, stacked like blocks, would be next without vigorous resistance. If they collapsed, European Christianity would no longer have a welcome mat east of the Bosphorus, and Jerusalem would again be lost. Men from Europe walked for months to cover the 2,000 miles from Paris to Jerusalem, so they might see where Christ had lived, died, and risen from death. The prospect of its loss was unendurable. With Edessa gone, the Principality of Antioch was now at the top of the stack of blocks. Just below it, lean as a finger, was the county of Tripoli. The precious kingdom of Jerusalem anchored the Ultramer's base. Surrounding this exposed trio of Christian colonies were the Muslim powers, the Sultanate of Rum like a cloud in the sky to the north, the Emirate of Damascus to the east, and the Caliphate of Cairo to the south. These six countries and their armies faced each other like players carrying guns at a high-stakes poker table. Antioch, the northernmost of the three, had a long history of brutality and bloodshed, witness to almost inconceivable carnage during the First Crusade. Count Stephen of Blois, who would die there, described the city in awed tones as great beyond belief. It was said to be protected by more than 400 defensive towers, bristling from its walls like fangs. The walls covered so much ground, there weren't enough crusader troops to go around. The place was so impregnable that the European besiegers suffered more than the besieged during that awful winter of 1097. Count Stephen had famously broken down in filth, raw cold, and starvation so profound that some crusaders may have eaten human cadavers. The city fell to the west, only many terrible months later, after a sometime Christian guarding one of the towers was persuaded to open a doorway. The story of the taking of Antioch didn't end there. Less than a week after the Crusaders won the city, slaughtering the Muslim inhabitants in the process, 
a Muslim army arrived to besiege the Crusaders. The relief column on its way from Byzantium quickly turned and went home, on an erroneous report that the Crusaders had already surrendered. The Europeans inside Antioch were desperate. Salvation arrived by way of a holy man and visionary named Peter Bartholomew, who announced to his fellow citizens that St. Andrew the Apostle had appeared and lifted him in his arms, flying him through the night sky to reveal a wondrous relic hidden for over a thousand years in the city's cathedral, the holy lance that had pierced Christ's side. Even in the day, this story had its skeptics. The papal legate to Antioch said openly that Bartholomew had invented the entire thing, given that it was well known that the lance was a famous drawing card of the imperial chapel in Constantinople. No matter. In a telling example of the power of faith, the wondrous discovery energized the penned-in crusaders. Thrilled to be carrying the spear that had touched the very body of Christ, they regrouped and marched back out to face the Moors, slashing and battling their way to victory. Many of the crusaders swore later that a heavenly army of saints had miraculously intervened when the Christians wavered. Antioch was then snatched back and forth between European, Moorish, and Byzantine control, like the last seat in a nasty game of musical chairs. It ultimately ended in European hands, a double vassal of the king of Jerusalem and the Byzantine emperor. In the 1130s, a ten-year-old girl named Constance had inherited the country from her father, not an ideal scenario for national stability in such a place at such a time. She badly needed a husband. The one she found was none other than Raymond of Poitiers, already in his mid-thirties. We have met him briefly before, this second son of Duke, seducer, and poet William IX of Aquitaine. Raymond was Eleanor's uncle. Nothing but a younger brother at home, Raymond had too few prospects in the Aquitaine to suit him. Instead of waiting around to see if his brother might die and create an opportunity to bully their inheritance away from his little niece, Raymond had accepted a ten-year-old bride and a life more than two thousand miles from home. Eleanor would forever have reason to be fond of him, an affection that would soon change lives from Antioch to England. Hard-won Antioch was bordered to its south by Tripoli, the lean midsection of the Latin kingdom, capable of gazing so far back in history that the 1,400 years credited to Edessa seemed a mere summer's afternoon. Pronged between the Mediterranean on one side and mountains forested with the biblical cedars of Lebanon on the other, it was a stubborn kind of place. It took ten years of siege before the First Crusade had won it. That prolonged battle had an incalculable impact on human history. Tripoli's great library, the Dar il Ilm, filled with thousands of volumes of work from antiquity as well as Islamic religious and scientific thought, was destroyed in the process. The West would go on to hold Tripoli for more than two centuries. Even at the end, in the 1270s, its massive fortress of the knights 
the Croque de Chevaliers, was the greatest crusader fortress in the world. Never did it fall to the Moors. It was lost only through treachery, possibly fate's payback for the crusader's trick on Antioch. Treachery did seem to enjoy sunning itself in this old place. One European ruler of Tripoli actively befriended the Muslim commander Saladin, hoping to overthrow his fellow Christian, the king of Jerusalem. And so we come to the kingdom of Jerusalem, which gained an uneasy dominance among the crusader states thanks to its proximity to Europe and its status as the supreme Christian icon. At its peak, the kingdom covered what we now know as Israel, Gaza, and Lebanon, along with parts of Jordan and Syria. It had spent the prior 450 years under Muslim control, but had been won back by the Crusaders in 1099, weeks of siege followed by savage hand-to-hand fighting. Having Christians win the city didn't do much for the defeated Arab and Jewish inhabitants who were butchered. According to the Islamic historian Tamim Ansari, a crusader wrote a letter home describing heads, hands, and feet piled in the streets, which he found a wonderful sight. Brutal squabbling about who got to rule it followed as a matter of course. Despite the best efforts of the new kingdom's eventual ruling family to be kingly, the place would never lose its well-earned reputation as a dizzying stew of rivalries, divorces, grudges, bigamy, conspiracies, and untimely deaths. The strategic consequences of all this dynastic turmoil would simmer throughout the Latin East for generations. By now, Anno Domini 1148, the crusading Germans were arriving in the Latin East in their thousands. Having crossed the Bosphorus at Manuel Comnenus' insistent invitation, they headed to Nicaea, a small, almost unbelievably ancient city across the Bosphorus, some sixty miles southeast of Constantinople. Its name would ring a bell with anyone alive at the time. It had been the immediate flashpoint of the First Crusade, after the Moors had violently seized it in 1078 and made it their capital. The Byzantine reaction to its loss was for Alexius Comnenus, the Byzantine emperor at the time, to call for help from the West. When the Crusaders arrived that time, they besieged the little city but couldn't take it, since a neighboring lake provided a handy route for food, fresh water, and fuel for the defenders. The First Crusade had groaned to a standstill. Saracens taunting their adversaries with well-targeted arrows. Then Alexius had a flash of pure tactical brilliance. He had ships built and rolled overland on logs so the crusaders could take control of the lake. Imagine the astounded Moors staring over their city walls as a forest of ships' masts slowly emerged at the edge of their horizon and then floated toward them along the dry washboard roads. Nicaea surrendered. It had been a Byzantine city ever since. Alexius, by the way, had won the day, but would be less applauded by his Western allies a year or so later. He infamously refused to help the Crusaders during their terrible fight for Antioch, 
which contributed greatly to European dislike for the Byzantines. Now Conrad and his Germans, separated from the French who were several weeks behind, could have just loitered around the old town waiting for their allies and fighting nothing but boredom. Possibly because it was already October and he was anxious to make the move before winter, possibly because he was overly confident, Conrad made several decisions without waiting for Louis. He chose to get to the crusade's goal, Edessa, by following the track of the first crusade. This was considered the most direct route, involving several weeks of travel across the Anatolian plateau. Along the way, his army would have the opportunity to pass Doraleum, the site of a great crusader victory fifty years before. Wanting to get free of several thousand non-combatants slogging along behind, he also decided to split off the pilgrims, clergy, and servants who were slowing his infantry, and send them along the relatively safe coast road south from Nicaea, heading in a roundabout way to the little southern coastal port of Adalia, where he would rejoin them before continuing his march on Edessa. Conrad put his half-brother, Otto of Freising, in charge of the non-combatant wing. One might think this a worrisome choice. Otto was a bishop, intellectual and aristocratic, not a military commander, and Moorish warriors were potentially anywhere and everywhere. Conrad and his army, some 30,000 foot soldiers and 6,000 mounted knights, left Nicaea on October 25th, late in the year for a long march in this part of the world always in potentially hostile territory, moving steadily away from Byzantium and their French compatriots, carrying enough provisions for about a week, at first they covered ground in good order. One can imagine their pride at being the vanguard of this glorious mission of God. As they made way slowly across the dry earth of western Anatolia, the slanting autumn sun casting hard shadows, they must have sent up dust clouds visible for miles. Days of marching wore on, getting harder with every new morning. They had never had enough food for this trek, and foraging was maddeningly skimpy. Men were hungry, and knew they'd be getting hungrier. Horses were thirsty and worn, and yet they were still days short of their destination. The port of Adalia and their reunion with the pilgrims who had set off under Otto. And they had a new concern. Fast-mounted Moorish archers who rarely missed seemed to emerge from nowhere before fading back into the sun haze. The initial engagement of the Second Crusade happened at Doraleum. The place was well known to Europeans, which may even be what drew them toward it. Almost exactly fifty years before, the first crusaders had won a hard-fought battle here. Perhaps that victory from an earlier lifetime was too reassuring, lulling the Germans into dangerous carelessness. They had been on the road long enough to be tired, hungry, and thirsty, the knights riding tired, hungry, thirsty horses. They made camp in all their thousands, near a river where they could water the animals. One can imagine men groaning with relief as they dropped heavy lances into the dirt, stripped off armor in favor of just a tunic and leggings, felt the river breeze ruffle their hair 
and took the chance to stretch, to swallow some water, to drop on a blanket and doze for an hour. Conrad let his foot soldiers rest while he went off with the knights to the river, horses eagerly scenting water, ears forward, impatient for their place in a line that must have stretched for miles along the banks. We have no idea how long they were there, staring off into the immensity of this worn-in country and listening to the comfortable sound of horses wickering at the pleasure of fresh water. Then at some point they caught the sound of other horses, not their own, sharpened by the unmistakable clangor of spreading panic among thirty thousand men. Snatched from a welcome nap in the chilly sunlight, the German infantry was swept into the maw of a full-on Muslim attack. The Moors' timing was perfection, and they hit spectacularly hard, their archers swirling over unprepared men trying to muster their wits and lay their hands on their weapons. Thousands of them never got that far. The uproar must have been incredible. Somebody at the outer edge of the encampment who understood what was happening ran for Conrad, who raced back with his knights, men yanking hard at their bridles and cursing that they weren't armored. Like too many others, Conrad took one and possibly two arrows himself and was seriously wounded. The reeling shock of it, pain, blood, raw instinctive fear. The Germans were finally able to drive the outnumbered Moors off, but now they were not only tired and hungry, they were bloody and torn, without any hope of reinforcement. Conrad, wounded himself, gathered up his men and set off again, but after three more days of bone-weary slogging, constantly at risk of being taken as slaves or murdered by the circling Moors, the Germans turned back to Nicaea. Some chroniclers seem almost hysterical in the battle's wake, utterly horrified that this could have happened. Reports arrived in Europe that 90% of Conrad's army was lost at Doraleum, the equivalent of losing 40,000 of the 45,000 front-line Allied troops who crossed into Iraq in 2003. A more sober modern analysis is that about 20% of the Germans were killed or captured, which still meant that Conrad lost more than 7,000 men. So much German treasure was seized from their routed camp that the local market for gold and silver collapsed. The vast German army, Bernard of Clairvaux's prize, first to set off from home, first to reach Constantinople, first to cross into hostile Anatolia, was devastated. Thousands had died, often exhausted and trapped, their last sight a Moorish warrior riding up, sword ready. Traumatized survivors limped all the way to Constantinople, looking for ways back to Europe. Conrad, whether spent from his wounds and his defeat, or unwilling to face the prospect of returning to a stunned country, wouldn't leave Nicaea. He did write to his regent Wybald. Masterful in whitewashing Doraleum, he told his court that he chose to lead the army away from what he called the desert back to the sea, so that it might regain its strength. He said that he, quote, preferred to preserve the army for greater achievements rather than to win so bloody a victory over archers, unquote. 
he simply neglected to note that the bloody victory had been the archer's, not his. Days later, when the French arrived in Nicaea from their stay in Constantinople, Conrad was still there. He and those troops he still possessed would agree to travel with Louis, but the rest of the Second Crusade would be in French hands. Conrad, the seasoned warrior, himself no match for the Moors, was no longer in charge. Louis Capet, former seminarian, was. The French force, pulling into Nicaea, was astounded by the German disaster, especially because they'd been told on the road that the Germans had won a great victory. Described as stupefied by grief, the French behaved chivalrously toward their defeated allies, supplying them with money, food, and medical care. We can wonder if Eleanor, who had promised to tend the wounded when she made her crusading pledge, pressed her ladies into service beside her, white hands washing bloody bodies and soothing frightened men struggling not to die. Those Germans who could and would still fight agreed to accompany the shaken French. Conrad said he would stay with his men, but he was very ill. Suffering from one, perhaps two arrow wounds as he did, was no small matter. Equal to being hit in later days by a musket ball, arrow wounds almost inevitably quickly became infected. By the time of the Second Crusade, unskilled surgeons often let the wound flare until it oozed pus, at which point they'd flush it with smoking hot oil and then yank the arrowhead away. The effect had to be rather like having an infected finger sautéed in a pan of hot Crisco just before the doctor pulled your nail out. Little wonder that Conrad, already worn down from the march and the battle itself, was a sick man. He was a warrior, but he had to leave the war to recover his strength and courage in the calm of Constantinople. Louis Capet, the former seminarian, would now be in charge. We've come to the end of our story for the time being. I am Beckett Arnold, narrating from the book Lion's Forge, adapted for us by the author, Karen Markle Nab. A big thank you to Francis Butt for voicing our introduction. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating, follow our channel, and share us with your friends. Most importantly, please join us again October 16th for the next episode of Lion's Forge, available everywhere you get your favorite podcasts, streaming on YouTube with video episode trailers, and now on Facebook, where you can ask questions, leave reviews, and interact with me.